Welcome to Kidney Commute, brought to you by the National Kidney Foundation, driven by the interprofessional team with emphasis on the patient voice. In each episode, we will incorporate the perspectives of the different members of the kidney team as well as the patient. Join our huddle on all things kidney health and allow new perspectives to inspire collaboration in your practice. Eligible listeners can earn credit along the way. The Kidney Commute, a continuing education podcast planned by the team for the team. Welcome to The Kidney Commute, an interprofessional NKF podcast. I'm Dory Minch, a transplant social worker in Winston-Salem with no financial relationships with ineligible companies to disclose. The National Kidney Foundation is excited to celebrate Pride Month and bring to you an important conversation about awareness, sensitivity, and understanding of the LGBTQ plus community. With us today is an esteemed panel of whom I will let introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Sylvie Shaw. I'm a transplant nephrologist at the University of Cincinnati. Very excited to be here. I have no relevant financial disclosures. Hi, I'm Shane Wally. My pronouns are Z here and here's. I have a consulting business called Daring Dialogues Consulting that does talks on LGBTQIA and DEI topics more broadly. And I have no financial relationships with ineligible companies. Hello, my name is John Baton. My pronouns are he, him. I have no financial disclosures with any eligible companies. I am the founder and CEO of Brandon in DC, a social marketing and event planning organization, and I am a patient advocate. Hi, my name is Sophia Ahmed, uh, and I have no financial relationships with eligible ineligible companies. I'm a professor of medicine and a nephrologist at the University of Calgary in Calgary, Canada, and I'm delighted to be here today. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Shane, I'm going to start with you, and um, I noticed in your introduction you shared with us your pronouns. Can you share with us the importance and appropriate use of pronouns um, in your experience and especially in, in healthcare? I can. I'm a big believer that any place our name is, our pronouns should go because we shouldn't ever assume anyone's gender based on how they look. So I'm a big proponent of everyone when we introduce ourselves, giving our pronouns. If someone doesn't give their pronouns, the easiest thing to do is just to ask, uh, what pronouns do you use? We all use pronouns because we all wanna be lovingly talked about in third person. And the only way we know how to do that with respect is to either give our pronouns or ask others what their pronouns are. Thank you so much for that explanation. John, as a healthcare recipient, what has your experience been in the organization or with your healthcare providers? I'd have to answer that question actually in a a two-tier perspective. I'm a Gen X to be clear. And when I was first diagnosed with kidney disease, I never really discussed my sexual orientation with my provider. Primarily, that was due to fear of reprisal, fear of undergoing unnecessary testing, and just some degree of uh, privacy violations. So I was very fearful of that. Now, within the past three years, I've begun to um, share my sexuality very openly and have actually had really good experiences with um, both organizationally and as well as with my providers. I would like to add a caveat to that. I am in Washington, D.C., and so we do have a very high LGBTQ population. And in fact, my um, primary care physician is of the LGBTQ community as well. 
So I can speak from my perspective that I'm actually doing quite well. Thank you for that, John. And I'm so glad that you live in a healthcare community where where they are inclusive. I think unfortunately in a lot of parts of the country, they're not. So I'm I'm hoping that while others may not have had your same experience, they are having better experiences than we have had in the past. Sophia, as a nephrologist, what have you noted to be ways to build trust and an open relationship with your patients from the LGBTQIA plus community? Thanks very much for that question. Uh, and I really want to highlight that this is an ongoing learning process. There's no one right way to build trust. And it's something that, you know, you work on together. First off, I'd like to say that nonverbal communication is really important. Uh, so as soon as a person walks into the healthcare area, they should recognize that this is a safe place for them to be. Uh, so have signage with a statement about that people of all genders, sexual identity, backgrounds, race, religion, et cetera, are welcome. You know, things like stickers, pins, flags, uh, pride and transgender pronoun pins are important. I really want to highlight uh, something that Shane said, and I missed this earlier, that my pronouns are she and her. You can't look at someone and, and know what their gender is. And so it's important to introduce yourself that way. And also by doing that, you signal to the person that, you know, you can tell me your pronouns too, and without fear of repercussions. And I think that's really important. Having gender neutral washrooms, a safe waiting area that people are going to be called by their chosen name rather than their dead name. Um, to just to ensure that the charts are updated. And so when you communicate with the person before they come in, you know, what are what are the names that that you would like to be called? Inclusive language in the clinic. Uh, you know, we don't ask about you know your wife or your husband or your girlfriend or your boyfriend. You know, just tell me about your partner or, or parental leave or or fertility concerns. And so just leaving it very open so that the person feels that you know they they can trust you and they can and that's the most important thing that uh, you know people are honest with about their medical and and social history. So thanks for that. Thank you, Sophia. John, I know that you shared that you've had a relatively positive experience in the healthcare community. Is there anything specifically that your providers did or didn't do to make that positive? Or was there ever a time when somebody got it wrong? No, there hasn't been a time when someone actually got it wrong. Um, I think one of the key things that my medical team has demonstrated to me and is actually kind of an example, I think, to others is their desire to communicate with um, each other and myself as well. And having kind of frank discussions about my treatments, my medications, what works for me, what doesn't work for me. So it's been very positive in, in that respect. Now, I do know that sometimes there's a little bit of a challenge between my primary care physician and my nephrologist because they have two different practicing styles. And every now and then my primary care physician is not sure if a treatment method is appropriate for me because of my kidney, um, because of my kidney disease and my transplant. So they will hop on the phone and they'll communicate back and forth. But I do know of other experiences that have been shared to me by my fellow colleagues and so forth that have not been as, as positive, especially with some of my trans friends who have communication difficulties with their, um, their teams. Thank you for sharing that, John. Sylvie, what specific considerations are there in the transplant populations? 
Thanks, Dori, for the question. I think one of the consideration is that uh, in the world of kidney transplantation, still there are no evidence-based guidelines with regards to LGBTQ plus community. So there is also, there is an interaction of immunosuppressive medications with gender affirming hormones. However, still a lot of research needs to be done on that. And we still don't, we, we still don't know how there is interaction of immunosuppression with these hormones. The other thing is how these gender affirming hormones impact kidney function uh, is still not completely known. So the other question is, how do we estimate the kidney function in people who are on gender-affirming therapy or who are transgender? So recently, I was having a conversation in the living donor evaluation clinic, like we had a patient who was on progesterone, and we actually told uh, the patient to stop progesterone. Um, it could be stopped, and the kidney function improved. So... As we did that, and we did see that impact. However, the literature is still not clear how all these hormones impact kidney function. So overall, I think very little, little is known, and more research needs to be done in this area. Thank you, Sylvie. Shane, I know you talked a little bit before about pronouns and appropriate use of pronouns, and as Sylvie, you know, just pointed out you know about asking someone to stop gender-affirming hormones and, and what that looks like. Why is that conversation so important, more so than the just stop the, the hormones, but the how would it feel to stop the hormones? Why would that be an important conversation to have? Yeah, I think, you know, for trans and non-binary people, we often are put in a position, right, like going off your, for people to go off their hormones uh, can mean that their transition is stopped or reversed. And so but the kidney piece might be life or death, right? So people are having to make hard decisions, I think, about and people's ability to pass, and I'm not a huge fan of that, right? But to be seen as the gender that they identify with also is a safety concern. So, right, like that is a lot to balance. And so for me, I would wanna be with a healthcare provider who's willing to have that whole conversation, right? And that I wouldn't want to be told, well, of course, your health is more important because my safety and my identity and looking in the mirror and seeing a person who who reflects back myself is also really critical. So those are tough, you know, those are tough conversations. And so, again, being willing to have to have kindness and compassion if people are resistant, right, to stopping their hormone treatment is important. I can also imagine there might be a time where if someone is planning to have any kind of gender reaffirming surgery, right, that that also then becomes a consideration of, of timing of things. And so just really being able to listen and not make assumptions, I just think is really important because you know, I think trans and non-binary people are always trying to bring their full humanity into their doctor's office. And that can be, you know, that can be scary. And I think especially right now, as there are so many states that are trying to stop or block gender affirming care, that that really is increasing people's fear in in having these kind of honest conversations about 
wherever they are in their medical transition. Thank you, Shane. You know, it, it is such an important conversation. So I think in the, the medical environment, we often think that um, saving the, a kidney function or, or saving a life is, is more important than anything, and that should take priority. But when, when we're not ourselves, you know, that is a priority. I mean, I have a lot of transplant patients who are on prednisone, and it doesn't make them feel like themselves, although they recognize how important it is. It, it, it's emotionally distressing for them, and we have to have conversations even at, at that baseline level. So being able to have that conversation is so important with your patients between healthcare providers and, and what's important in your healthcare. Sophia, from your perspective as a provider, you know, hearing what Shane just said in your experience, what considerations do you have in the care for transgender people? Yeah, thanks. So that I really would like to follow up on what, you know, the excellent points that Shane just made. I think it's important that there's recognition that there's a significant emphasis on potential risks associated with gender affirming hormone therapies for those who are seeking treatment and not everybody who is non-binary or transgender does seek treatment with gender affirming hormone therapy and many do. But it's also important to put that and those uncertainties uh, in the context that there's many cisgender people who take sex hormones for a variety of medically necessary reasons. So, you know, low testosterone levels, endometriosis, birth control, menopausal symptoms. And in, and, uh, in medical school and in, you know, residency training, we're, we're trained to counsel people around the risks and benefits of these hormonal treatments, which are medically necessary. And to support people in, in making their clinical decision-making. And I, I don't see gender-affirming hormone therapy any differently than this. And so it's important when we're providing care to people who may be taking or, or thinking about taking gender-affirming hormone therapy that we also provide this high-quality personalized care um, and recognize that gender, for many, gender-affirming hormone therapies is medically necessary and, and can be life-saving. So it's you know, it's a balance. And so this goes back to that shared decision-making that, that Shane so eloquently highlighted. It's, you know, there's, there's very pros and cons, a lot of pros and cons around this or potentially, and it's just so that people can make the decision that's right for them. I also just want to highlight outside of gender affirming hormone therapy that, you know, we, the most important thing, uh, or I guess just in all populations is trust. Um, and so this is, you know, accurate evaluation of kidney function. We do it, we determine estimated GFR to guide our clinical decision-making. So, you know, similar to what Sylvie was saying, the decision to, you know, list someone for transplant, initiate dialysis, medication dosing, even referral to nephrology in the first place requires the, often a, a cutoff for eGFR using a, a, an equation that they commonly use a sex gender, or not common, well, almost all of them, a binary sex gender covariate. And it's not really clear whether we should be using a binary sex assigned at birth, so what it says on someone's birth certificate, or a person's affirmed gender or gender identity. Which should we be including? Which is more accurate? And we also know that in those who use gender affirming hormone therapy, uh, this is associated with changes in serum creatinine, another covariate that goes into calculating eGFR. So creatinine goes up with testosterone and, and goes down with estrogen commonly. But whether this actually reflects true changes in kidney function is, is really unknown. 
So basically at present, like the best practice is, again, as everyone on this this great interview, this podcast is saying, is to have an open conversation, to have this shared decision-making with the person in clinic. Take into account their sex assigned at birth, their sex hormone configuration, you know, whether they've had a gonadectomy, whether they're on hormone therapy, as well as their gender identity and, and find out, you know, together or come up with a treatment plan that, that aligns with this person's wishes. Thank you, Sophia. And again, at the end of the day, it all comes back to having that conversation. Sylvie, do you know anything or, or what can we know about side effects of, of hormone therapy, whether it's gender affirming or hormones used for other things? So as Sophia and Shane mentioned, everything these have pros and cons. So there are some medical concerns with the hormone repl replacement therapies and gender affirming therapies especially in patients with kidney disease. However, I would like to highlight here is that our patients have kidney disease and that just makes them a very specific population. And still a lot of studies shows unequivocal results with regards to side effects of these hormones. However, overall, it does increase the risk of hypertension, increases the risk of headaches, and also increases the risk of clots. With regards to cancer or malignancies, there may be a slight increase in the risk of breast cancer. So it is, uh, it is recommended um, that regular screening mammograms to be performed, which, uh, which routinely women are getting um, after uh, 40 years of age. However, this risk is extremely, extremely small. The other thing is um, testosterone also increases the risk of polycythemia. So therefore it is very important these uh, the blood counts are monitored when uh, patients are on it. Thank you, Sylvie. Shane, in, in your experience, or you know, even John, and we talked about this a little bit before, are there better ways to build trust? Are there ways to completely destroy trust? What are your thoughts on that? I, I so ap appreciate the conversation um, and wish these providers were in Austin, because um, I think one of the really important pieces to talk about in the trust building is you could be the best provider and do really well by trans and non-binary folks, but I may, as a non-binary person, have had bad experiences with former providers. The trans and non-binary folks often don't go in for preventative care, right? We wait until we're in, until, until we're in a crisis, maybe to go in because we are hesitant. So I really appreciated the comments about, right, people like, when I go in, what's on the intake form? Are you asking about my biological sex because that's what you need to treat and my gender identity because that's how to treat me as a human with respect, right? Asking and sharing pronouns, making sure that front desk staff is as well-trained as providers are trained because sometimes I have, I get misgendered by right front desk staff so right that that entry point is so important intake forms are so important asking questions and not making assumptions an example of that would be i'm somebody who has had top surgery and so on any intake form when it says what major surgeries have you had right i say double mastectomy and i've had a provider look at that and then ask me if I've had cancer instead of just saying, why have you had a double mastectomy? 
um, because then I have to say, no, I've had gender, <laughs> right? And then that becomes a really awkward conversation off the top. Other people have said this about not making assumptions and asking really open questions for people. The other thing that's so important is making sure that intake forms or conversations are finding out legal name and chosen name. Legal names are needed often for insurance and chosen name, again, is how I want to be referred to in the office. And then the other piece that sometimes can come up for trans and non-binary people are complications with insurance. If somebody has legally changed their gender, but their biology, right, but their biology is what's on their sex assigned at birth, it shouldn't probably happen in the kidney world. But in some other spaces, it can jam people up with insurance. So there's just a level of patience and trust in really, again, kind of hearing people's concerns about what might come up and knowing that you might have to work a little extra hard to build trust, right, because of previous bad experiences that people have had. So I, hopefully those are, are uh, helpful. Absolutely. And I, yeah, I want to point out how you mentioned providers maybe have to work a little bit harder to build trust. I mean, as patients, and, and I'm sure we've all experienced this, we walk into a doctor's office and we're automatically expected to trust that provider. And, and you know, we don't. And, and you don't trust anyone until they demonstrate that level of trust. And so putting in that extra effort is really important. John, do you have anything to share? I actually do. Um, I actually want to go back to you and, and say thank you to Sophia when she was discussing nonverbal communication, because I feel that is very, very important for us. I sometimes think we think that we are the masters of nonverbal communication. We look for the colors. We look for the signs. We look for the little door placards in restaurants and in, and in businesses that give us that permission to go in and be ourselves and to be able to communicate. You know, when Sophia was talking about nonverbal communications and what she does in her office, I felt that it was excellent because they say first impressions are everything. And if my first impression walking into Sophia's office were was to see the colors or the stickers or flat, even just a simple flag there, I feel very, very comfortable. So I just wanted to commend her on that because nonverbal cues are extremely important to us because we look for them every day. Sophia, as a provider, and I know you've talked about this a little bit, but if you can wanted to add, and, and Sylvia as well, how can we improve care for transgender and LGBTQ plus people? Thanks for that question, Dory. In addition to the great discussion that you know we've already just had, I think there's also a lot of room for advocacy for safety and inclusion at a systemic level in healthcare and, and policy, right? Like, so, so we include safety as a process rather than depend on individual providers. And this follows up, you know, what Shane was just saying that uh, the intake forms, like there's no reason that we have to depend on an individual clinic to change those. Let's change those policy or hospital wide or, or where I live you know, province-wide and just, you know, find find ways that it just becomes part of the process rather than, you know, dependent on the individual person because the person will change, um, but the process, you know, well, often doesn't. But, you know, if it's in, in there, then, then that just becomes normalized. 
I also think that we need more research, and I don't mean specifically more research on transgender populations or LGBTQ individuals, though certainly there are you know, study-specific questions that could be answered, but really to recognize the cis and het normativity in research and normalize uh, diversity. So like in partner with people with lived experience at all stages of the research who would be able to point out, for example, that, you know, your washrooms, you want a urine sample as part of your study, but your washrooms are not gender neutral. So that's an automatic reason why people might not sign up for your, for your study. You know, make sure the study team and, and, you know, Shane, you explained this beautifully that uh, the study team and the clinical team is, is trained to ensure safety, cultural competency, use inclusive language in your recruitment analysis dissemination. So, you know, those are, those are ways I think that ultimately we can improve care. So I think in addition to what Sophia mentioned, and she covered most of the points, one thing I would like to emphasize is like provider training. So we have not received any training uh, in our residency, in our fellowship with regards to LGBTQ plus population and how uh, to deal with with, with their health. So I think that is very, very important uh, to have that included. The other thing is awareness and advocacy. And I think uh, this was already touched upon, but inclusion of uh, LGBTQ plus people in, and, and their community in all the committees and the advocacy groups. We do have patients now involved in these com uh, committees and advocacy groups, but specifically including LGBTQ plus people, I think would also make a great difference in improving their care. Thank you, Sylvie. Shane and John, I have one more question for you, and this is a little off script, but when you share your pronouns with people, which I think is very important, especially in the medical field, what is the response that you get from the providers? Because I know at some point I added my pronouns to my email signature and I had everybody coming up to me and asking me, well, why'd you add that? Why'd you add that? And I said, because that's who I am and I want people to know who I am and I want people to know that they can share who they are with me. And so when you, when you share your pronouns with your healthcare providers and you, know, you are in two very different locations and having two very different experiences, is that well-received? Is it confusing for people? Has it been a good, helpful experience? Because I, I think that, and I'm asking because I, I want providers to know that it's okay to ask and share theirs. Well, for me, it's been a, um, it's been an, it's been interesting because when I do use my pronouns with my my team, my uh, medical team, it has been more of an educational response to the point where some of my team even now have pronouns added in their electronic signatures which I find to be extremely complimenting. I've only had one provider who was, I guess, a little, I shouldn't say he was discouraged or disheartened by me using pronouns because he likes to play devil's advocate. And so we embarked on a very interesting conversation as to why I use pronouns. What do they mean to me? And, you know, in the end, he, you know, confessed that he understood all of that. but. You know, again, when you live in the District of Columbia, the center of political power, pronouns, synonyms, the whole nine yards that just kind of more freely accepted and understood and people are aware of them. And so the majority of people that I interact with, their signatures, their professional signatures 
have their pronoun identifications. And this is even coming from areas that I would not normally expect. And so I've had um, a wonderful experience and hope to continue to do so. But it is, it is, has always proven to be an interesting um, dynamic for me because I will say I only, I actually started accepting my pronouns maybe about three years ago, maybe three to two years ago, where I started actually adding pronouns for myself. So it's been a little bit of a journey for me too. I think helping people realize that everyone has pronouns and it's not just trans and non-binary people is the first hurdle. I use Z here and here's. I've been using them since 2007. They are less known than using they, them, and their as singular. What I find is that providers never use my pronouns. I have a, um, a lesbian identified doctor who I've been seeing for 10 years, and she still has a hard time with my pronouns. And then I think the other piece that we haven't talked about is we gender people by saying sir and ma'am all the time, which is also exceedingly frustrating because for me, right, again, I have an F on my birth certificate. I identify as neither male nor female, but I sometimes read as an older white man. And so people definitely want to be respectful. And so I often get served at the desk. I might get served or mammed by the doctor or the nurses. So I hear myself being gendered multiple ways by multiple people. And because doctor, you know, for me, doctors are people with, you know, many, many years of schooling and degrees. And so I don't necessarily want to correct people. And I don't want to correct people for a couple of reasons. One, I want to be respectful of them. Two, I usually am in need of something and I don't want to sidetrack getting what I need for my medical care. I also don't want to piss my, to be honest, I don't want to piss my doctor off because I don't know what my treatment then will become. So I often just absorb whatever is coming and then right? I call a friend when I'm done and I'm like, these are the 25 gender shenanigans that happened at the doctor's office today. And so I really appreciate, and I also have been in a doctor's office where they have recently, during the time I was there, they changed their intake form to ask sex orientation, gender identity, and pronouns. And it caused quite a stir in the waiting room because People were finding it out on iPads as they were checking in. And I will say there, because again, people are like, why are we being asked this? This isn't important, blah, blah, blah. And again, for me, I think everyone wants to be lovingly talked about in third person. And the way we do that is with pronouns. So, right, like trying to figure out how to help people understand that it is a normal part of speech and that we can't assume them and that we have to learn them is just important. And again, if I have had the experience in a particular doctor's office of being misgendered, right, then that's a thing. Another side note that I wanna add about this is for trans and non-binary people, right, you may have a great primary care physician, but then if that primary care physician tells you to see a bunch of specialists, which I have recently had to do, 
that means that I then have to go and train or wonder about what's going to happen in all of the specialist office. Um, and so again, it can just be really it can just be really exhausting. But my health is really important to me, so I put up with a lot in order to have that happen. Thank you, Shane and John both. Are there any other takeaways or any other things that people would like to add before we finish? I'd really like to follow up on the, the great comments by John and Shane uh, that were just brought up. Uh, and just to highlight that the social determinants of health play such an important role in everybody's health and in particular people who identify as trans, non-binary, gender diverse, uh, you know, who are part of the LGBTQ, TQ plus uh, communities. It's just, you know, like gender minority stress, Shane, what you've just described is, is a great example of that. And, you know, people have decreased access to healthcare you know, it could be through financial or, or lack of insurance, but it also could be due to fear of, not could be, certainly is due to fear of discrimination. You know, things like housing and financial insecurity are, have higher prevalence in, in some populations and others. And it's just, so it's important to recognize that all of these factors play an important role in health as well, as well as what is happening in the actual clinic. And so I, I think as healthcare providers and researchers and and Sylvie certainly touched upon this, just changing the conversation in society around, you know, what is, honestly, I'm going to say what is normal. You know, there is gender diversity, there's, there's, there's diversity in everything. And just recognizing that, you know, we, we can all work together and our common goal is just to optimize health. And in this case, kidney health as part of an entire person or the whole person, I should say. So thanks. I wanted to give a resource. I thought maybe that might be helpful too, right? So if people aren't aware, there's an organization called Health Professionals Advancing LGBTQ Plus Equity. They're lovingly known as GLAMA. So it's glma.org. And they have a research page. They can help people uh, with their thinking about the questions on their intake forms. They do educational programs. They're kind of my go-to around LGBTQIA plus health. So uh, if you're not familiar with them, that's a good place to start. If this is something that you want to uh, kind of think and, and learn more about. So thank you so much for this really insightful and, and um, powerful conversation today. I'd like to just highlight how important conversation is. Asking questions and knowing who your patients are are very important in your care. We know that there's not a lot of research or a, a lot of um, things known about the impact of gender affir affirming or other hormone use. So before decisions are made, those conversations are really important to have in your shared decision-making with your patient. And finally, more education is needed. If the education isn't handed to you, it's our responsibility as healthcare providers to find it and access it and share it with our colleagues. I'd like to thank all of our panel members for their contributions to this important discussion. And to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us on this Ride of the Kidney Commute. Remember, eligible audiences can earn CE credit for listening to this episode by clicking the link in the episode description. If you have any comments or suggestions for future episodes, please email the team at nkfpodcast at kidney.org. 
stay tuned for future huddles. And in the meantime, continue to let new perspectives inspire your practice.